discuss too much. Blog Talk Radio. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave and ancient land to me. children can run free so take my hand and walk this land with me and walk this lovely land with me though I Well, good evening and welcome to Yada Yada Radio. It's still with a heavy heart that we bring this program to you based upon the travesty that was perpetrated on Israel by uh, the best of Muslims from Gaza. Uh, and there is additional uh, news. That the primary concern, of course, that we have is that the world at large, because of uh, progressives being immoral and thoughtless, uh, and Muslims being disgusting, um, continue to riot and protest around the world on behalf of rapists and kidnappers, mass murderers and terrorists, and against their victims. Even the United Nations, Gutierrez, who must be the least moral man to ever head a, uh, an international body, uh, pulled out the old Title 99 where he wanted to demand that Israel must stop its action in Gaza where it's att- attempting to hold Hamas accountable. And as we have said so many times, there is no prevailing for Israel. This is a lose-lose scenario. It's uh, They're in a position where if they did not invade Gaza, uh, then they were lame ducks. Uh, they would be Um, diminished and sized almost immediately, and uh, they would just wait for the next punch. Um, uh, No one could govern a country that allows its citizens to be abused in that way. Uh, And yet, if they tried to defend themselves and hold the perpetrators accountable, the world was going to rise up against them and scream, as we see in Russia and China throughout the Islamic world, um, throughout uh, Europe. Um, It's almost universal of uh, people saying that. And and even in Gaza, it's an untenable situation. Uh, There is no part of Gaza, nothing there, that is uh, not a war target. Um, That when the United States forced 
Israel to withdraw from Gaza uh, and give Gaza to the Muslims. Um, ostensibly, it was going to be another step in uh, self-governance for the Muslims and an eventual state of terrorism for them. All that happened is that the United States and Europe poured, and also the Islamic world from the gas pump, poured countless billions of dollars into Gaza. And with every dollar that came in, it became more deplorable. They made a prison for themselves. But they didn't just make a prison for themselves. Uh, Hamas, which had enormous popularity throughout the Islamic world and particularly among the Fakistinians, um, turned it into a, um, a war zone. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the pictures that that show the amount of weapons uh, hidden between schools and mosques and hospitals, it's just staggering. It, it's of such an enormous scale. And you look at every house they go into, every hospital they go into, every school they go into is filled with weapons. Right. You know, RPGs and uh, AK-47s, on and on and on the stockpiles go, and rockets and parts of rockets. It's, they didn't spend the money on anything other than uh, stockpiling the means to torment and kill Jews. Yes. And so how do you spare... Uh, these buildings that are filled with weapons. You can't send your troops into them because so many of them are booby-trapped. You don't right. want to risk your your young men uh, and their lives in this way. They can't go into the tunnels because most of the tunnels are booby-trapped. You don't want to sacrifice your men's lives in that way like we did in Vietnam with sending yes. men into the tunnels that were made there. What a terrible thing to do. So grotesquely inappropriate. In fact, one of the shafts of the tunnels was booby-trapped, and the former uh, uh, most senior military general in the IDF, he lost his son. Yeah. Makes you disgusted with Netanyahu, and his son is uh, there partying in Florida. How mm-hmm. reprehensible is he? And, of course, then you have the Haredim who couldn't lift a finger to help Israel and demand all sorts of subsidies so that they're weak-armed and weak-legged and weak-backed, weak-spined, useless, uneducated religious buffoons can be parasites on that society and not do anything to support it. It's a real mess in Israel. Um, they, uh, they're committed to eradicating Hamas, and if they killed every Hamas terrorist, that would be a good thing. But killing them all does nothing for them. Yes, they all need to die. However, Gaza was nothing but a manufacturing facility for terrorists. A young child is a terrorist in waiting. A young woman is a terrorist manufacturing facility. If you look at the 
at how the Gazians respond when kidnapped women and children were bought, brought back in. They celebrated when, when convicted Islamic terrorists were returned. They celebrated. It's universal. They're all guilty. They're all complicit. There are no innocent civilians. And even if there were, it's not Israel's fault, nor can Israel sacrifice their lives of their children to separate the terrorists from those whose skirts they're hiding beneath. Mm-hmm. So it is a, uh, it's a travesty for uh, Israel. Uh, and at the end of the war, of course, the United States is already negotiating with the Palestinian Authority to govern Hamas, and all you have to do, or to govern Gaza, and all you have to do is look at Judea and Samaria. And uh, what the PA has done since the PA was established from the Oslo Accords, and it is uh, almost as bad. There are almost as high a percentage of jihadists, uh, some about 90% support the eradication, annihilation of Jews. Mm. And they're armed to the teeth now with all manner of weapons. And so it is a Gaza waiting to explode. So Israel can't allow them to go in. The last thing Israel wanted was to have to occupy Gaza. Can you imagine that, the cost of doing so? But what is the cost of, of allowing it to become a, a military encampment poised for their destruction? And then all the while, you look at uh, Jordan, who doesn't care how many weapons the Fakistinians have, nor Syria, and of course not Lebanon, who's been paralyzed by Hezbollah and Iran with many more weapons and and more sophisticated weapons than were deployed here. And what can Israel do? If she occupies her northern communities again, then they will become like the kibbutzim in southern Israel and be overrun, overrun um, with Jews being kidnapped and held for ransom and, and murdered. There were several other reports out of, uh, out of Israel. One is that the, uh, both boys and girls who were kidnapped, were raped. Hmm. There's very little said about it, of course, even though the doctor has come out and said, I examined uh, 100, and I can tell you that the majority of them were raped. Um, hmm. Only so much can be said, because if they, if they pronounce, if the individual hostages come out and talk about what happened to them, not only is it traumatic for them, not only can't they go about even attempting to live a normal life, but there'd be no mm-hmm. chance in ever getting any more out. Yeah. Right. And, of course, that's the reason why Hamas broke the ceasefire and stopped releasing the rest of the women is because they were so brutalized that uh, there, was, uh, there was nothing they could do without international shame. Yeah, Some of the, the bodies that were uh, brutalized, mutilated at the uh, both two places. One is the music festival and also at the uh, IDF base that was right near where that uh, rave took place. The women weren't just raped, not just gang raped. And, you know, gang raping somebody that you're going to go off and kill, that's a pretty disgusting thing to do. That uh, is inhuman. But 
that's not even the half of it. With the women being raped and mocked and alive, they cut off their breasts and played with them as if they were balls. They cut their necks off. They cut their legs off. After raping them, and sometimes even before raping them, they cut out their genitals. These are savages beyond imagination. There is proof that some of the women that they raped and then tortured and mutilated, they continued to rape after they were dead. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the lowest level of depravity imaginable. Right. And there's only one thing on this planet that's capable of inspiring that kind of depravity. Islam. Yes. And so if you're tolerant of Islam... If you don't want to hold Islam accountable, if you're supportive of Islam, if you're a Muslim, to hell with you. You're as revolting as are the mutilators and rapists. The problem isn't Hamas. It's not Hezbollah. It's not Iran. It's not Saudi Arabia. It's Islam. Take a look at the 55 majority Islamic countries. And consider how hellish life is there. I want to go to Somalia, Sudan, Libya, Algeria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. Which of these countries do you want to go to? None. Any one of the northern and western African Islamic countries? No. Life isn't worth it. Especially not as a woman. Oh, you have no rights. You can be raped, and the rapist is a hero, and the woman is beaten. Mm -hmm. That's why I think the cartoon that you're you're working on there uh, uh, is so interesting. You'll have to send it out, of course, anonymously because of what Muslims do to cartoonists. Uh, I just thought about that, but uh, we're going to draw a cartoon that has uh, Muhammad hiding under his uh, his aging wife's uh, robes <laughs> and, and have the, the byline, you know, would you buy a burqa from this man? <laughs> or, or, <laughs> the, uh, the first cross-dressing prophet. Uh, scared, spitless, terrorized. That is Mohammed, mm-hmm. a rapist, a pedophile a ruthless mass-murdering terrorist. That's why what happened on October 7th occurred, because of Muhammad and his wannabe god, Allah, the snake that slithered out of the garden. This is serious business. It's deadly business. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there aren't 10 voices in the world that are willing to hold Islam accountable. To say the problem is not a corruption of Islam, not radicalized Islam, it's not... Islamic clubs like Hamas and the PLO and Hezbollah, Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda, ISIS. It's just Islam. Pure Islam. The Islam of the Quran, the Islam of the Sunnah and Hadith. The only Islam Mm -hmm. there is. Yes. Just Islam. And until people 
around the world recognize that, are, are able to say it knowingly, convincingly, then there will be many more days, like October 7th of this year. So that is the reason that uh, I, after some 22 years, I went back and decided that I would rewrite uh, Prophet of Doom. It is now Goddamn Religion. Uh, volume 1 is available at Amazon in paperback, hardback, as an ebook, and is available free in its entirety on the yadayah.com website. Beautiful presentation in the, uh, the initial volume, uh, Snake in the Desert, Slithering Out of the Garden. And we are within probably three weeks of being able to publish volume two. I hope that is the case anyway. I'm, I'm within two weeks of finishing uh, my rewrite of it. I think on page 613 of what now is 720 some odd pages in uh, volume two, uh, uh, which is satanic. Um, and so I'm hopeful that that with it, this book of delusions of grandeur of how Satan wanted to be God um, can be ready in about three weeks to, uh, so before the end of this year, to join volume one of Goddamn Religion on the shelf. Um, at such time, I'll begin the uh, terrorist uh, volume four of, of Goddamn Religion and speak of uh, Muhammad's life in Yathrib uh, when he uh, moved into the only city uh, in Arabia uh, was uh, Yathrib. And how it, uh, he became the very terrorist that Muslims are today. So that's where we are. We're going to return our, uh, our review uh, to um, a chapter uh, in uh, Volume 2 of Goddamn Religion. Uh, Ed, uh, the chapter is with whom am I speaking is the uh, the name of it the polite way to say this is really a, a sinister soul um, Muhammad admitted that he had been demon possessed and it's obvious um, he knew that his meeting was with a, uh, a demonic spirit almost killed him beat the life out of him to the point where he uh, tried several times to commit suicide, was too big a wuss to even commit suicide. Um, and every account of this night of nights, the birth of Islam, the inauguration of the Quran is, is uh, dark, demented, demonic. And nothing improves from that point forward. So we're going to continue with our uh, review of it. Um, we ended our program uh, last week with um, with Muhammad's wife uh, at the time uh, saying that oh, it had to be uh, Allah could not have been a devil because uh, the uh, the spirit that only Muhammad could see didn't run away when uh, he came underneath her uh, cloak. So this is from Muslim and also from Tabadi. Tabadi, the same uh, hadith, is both in the history and in the topical collection. It reads, I asked Abu Salama what 
uh, was revealed first in the Quran. He said, the shrouded one enveloped in the cloak. But I knew better and said, wasn't it recite? Jibir said, I am telling to you what the messenger told to me. He said, I stayed in the cave for one month. And when my stay was completed, I came down and went into the valley. Somebody called to me and I looked, but I did not see anybody. And I was again called, but saw nothing. I raised my head and there on the throne in the atmosphere, he was sitting. I began to tremble because I was afraid of him. These were Uthman's words, but the correct version is, I was terror-stricken by him. Mm -hmm. Then I came to Khajija and threw water, and she threw water on me, and Allah sent down, you who are shrouded, arise and deliver a warning. Your God, magnify your clothes, glance. (laughs) I guess that's as a result of her throwing the glass of water (laughs) on him. Uh, of course, uh, it didn't happen that way, not according to the Quran anyway, uh, not according to all of the other hadith where uh, this uh, occurred while he was in the cave. Some hadith says he was sleeping, others say that he was standing. Some say it was during the day, most say it was during the night. The Quran says it was during the night where the dark spirit Uh, nearly killed him and that that spirit was indeed Allah because he did not see Gabriel allegedly until he had left and it was Gabriel that was standing astride the horizon but now we find that it is the throne and on the throne was the one that spoke to him the throne belongs to Allah which means the one that demonized him demon possessed him tormented him in the cave was none other than Allah, which means that Allah is Satan. So this is not a helpful hadith for the uh, Muslim apologists. It is the same confession. The aerial throne is is Allah's. We regaled in the throne that was sitting on the uh, on the cloud uh, when we mocked the Islamic creation accounts. Uh, It's the one that's sitting on the big fish, the one that is mentioned in the Quran. And the fish is on a rock, and when the fish giggled, the rock shook. Yeah, that's the one. And since this is supposed to be explaining the inception of the Quran, this is no ordinary surah. This is the 96th. This is the beginning of it all. The angel in the cave abusing Muhammad had to be Allah. And as such, Allah cannot be God. Allah has to be a demon. And while that is certain, it is also certain that Muhammad had become a pathological liar. He had a very poor memory. He couldn't remember what he said one day to the next. Every story was different. That's the problem with lying. Mm-hmm. He was depressed and he was suicidal. And of course, he admitted that he was demon-possessed. So, dear Mother of Islam, I am so very sorry to inform you, but there was a problem in the delivery of your baby. He went into jihadist mode and committed suicide. We had to bury the little bugger before he infected the rest of the children. 
That is really the proper epithet that should be written on the tombstone of Muhammad at the very conception of Islam. This was a miscarriage. Abdul Allah al-Madudi, one of the most famous Quran commentators and also, of course, a terrorist, explains, after this first revelation, no revelation came down to the prophet for quite some time. The long suspension was such a period of deep grief and distress for him that he started going early to the tops of mountains to throw himself down from them. Well, that's for damn sure he wasn't in Mecca then. Had to be in Petra. But wherever he stood on the edge of the peak, the Gabriel, the angel Gabriel would appear to him and tell him that he was Allah's prophet. This would console him and restore his peace of mind. This is once again affirmation that he was in Petra, which was filled with Christians as opposed to in the little mud hutville that didn't even exist at the time at Mecca where there would have been none. There would be no way for him to gravitate to the name Gabriel if it weren't for Christians who uh, were the majority of the inhabitants at Petra at the time. Because uh, of Luke, they believed that Gabriel came and announced the pregnancy of uh, little uh, Miriam so that she would be blessed, the the mother of God, the uh, queen of heaven, uh, and that she would uh, deliver this uh, God's child. And so if Muhammad was claiming to be the next Jesus, well, he would need a similar announcement, which is where he came up with the name Gabriel. Not aware that Gabriel is Gibber, which is uh, man, and uh, Gabor, which is strong, capable, influential, and courageous man, and El, God. As the author of the esteemed six-volume Quran translation and commentary, uh, Tafhim ul Quran, Towards Understanding the Quran, which was published in 1972, I have elected to place for those reading along with us um, the commentary of al-Madudi in uh, the Islamic uh, grade back bold that we use throughout these books to distinguish it from my own commentary because he clearly speaks of Orthodox Islam and my commentary is not bolden because I do not. He is an Islamic ideologue and has swallowed the poison as if nectar from the fingertips of his Lord. But that's why he is the ideal expositor to convey the Islamic interpretation of the Quran. Not surprisingly, Abdul Allah al-Madudi devoted his life to the prospect of returning Muslims to the 7th century. He would do so by imposing Sharia law. He was an outspoken critic of democracy and of secularism and of political and religious freedom. He was an opponent of women's rights and wrote, the greatest threat to morality was a woman's visibility. It is stunning (laughs) that progressives are dumb enough to um, support Islam, to march with Muslims. 
when here the fundamentalist Muslim, one of the most famed modern-day commentators, translators even, of the Quran, said the greatest threat to morality was a woman's visibility. Mm. You know, speaking of progressives, it, it struck me the other day that um, nothing you can do to a progressive is going to awaken them. You know, that the kibbutzim in southern Israel, that, uh, that most of the hostages came from, most of the Jews that were murdered uh, uh, and kidnapped came from kibbutzim. You know what a kibbutzim is? The first experience with communism on the planet. First experience with communism on the planet. Communism was conceived in Israeli kibbutzim, even before Israel was a country. A kibbutzim is a, uh, is a farm, it's a collective farm, where the land is owned by the collective and everybody works cooperatively in a communist fashion. The workers are exceedingly liberal. They're communists, Marxists. That doesn't make them bad people. It's just who they are. And the majority of them are, um, therefore, peaceniks. They're the ones that advocate for the two-state solution. They're the ones that want to embrace Muslims. They're the ones that pretend that we can just all get along. Come by, yeah. And yeah. so those that they supported, that they embraced, that they coddled, as progressives, murdered them, brutally savaged them. And so when Sintonwar came through the tunnels, one of these progressives actually said, why would you kidnap me? We're for peace with the Fakistanians. Why would you do that? He had no answer. And yet, they haven't awakened. You can't go to bed with a rattlesnake and expect not to be bitten. Right. Anyway, speaking of Abdu'Allah al-Madudi, and and, um, we're going to reference his take on many surahs uh, as introductory uh, to them because I'm going to present them and just tear them to ribbons. So it's at least appropriate for the Muslim interpretation of those surahs to be presented. So at this moment, I, I want to share a little background of who Abdul Allah al-Madudi was. Mm-hmm. It turns out he wasn't against everything, not just against women and secularism and freedom. Nope. He was uh, an advocate of Islamic terrorism. He was the founder of the horrifically brutal Jamaat-e-Islamiyah, Society of Islam. Through it, Madudi wasn't uh, 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 interested and uh, um, carving off a portion of, uh, of India uh, to become uh, Islamic, uh, which is uh, you know, what Pakistan ultimately became. No, according to, uh, to Madhuri, no, India had to be conquered for Islam. He said it was the only way that, that the words of the Quran could be honored, because the whole world has to be Islamic. So he was opposed to splitting off a state called Pakistan, even though that's where he would 
move and live and terrorize. Through his killing club, he would inspire <laughs> riots against the uh, Madidya uh, because, in his view, their Islam wasn't as pure as his own. That resulted in mass murder. He was sentenced to death for his role in this deadly affair, but he was released because most Pakistanis agreed with him, turning uh, these riots into a victory for the advancements of fundamentalist Islamic terrorism in Pakistan and the superiority of a Muslim state governed by the Quran and Sunnah. So that we understand Madhudi's staunch and unwavering position on the Quran and Hadith and his uh, tafsir interpretation entitled uh, Tafhimul Quran, he stressed four interrelated concepts essential to Quranic study. They include Illah, the divinity of the wannabe God. Rab, <laughs> lordship. I laugh because Rab's not the word for Lord, it's the word for Rabbi. It means ex- exalted one. Uh, Adon and, uh, and Baal are the words for Lord. They got snookered. Uh, Ibadah, which means worship through absolute obedience to the Rab, Ilah, and Den by being religious. Therefore, everything in the universe was a Muslim in Maradi's eyes, since everyone and everything obeyed Allah in submission. Regarding the hadith which comprised Sharia law, Madudi claimed that he could personally sense the words Muhammad spoke and was inspired to correctly interpret them in the manner the Prophet intended. Therefore, it would be hard to find a more appropriate resource when it comes to opening our minds to Muhammad's thinking and Allah's will. Returning to the hadith upon which this embarrassing confession is found, it demonstrates that Islam's lone prophet was suicidal. While al-Madudi would likely disagree with me and even seek to kill me, well, he can't anymore, he's dead. From a more sane perspective, it's uh, too bad Islam's non-profit wasn't successful. Uh, gutless, I suppose. Tabari, book 6, page 76. The inspiration ceased to come to the messenger for a while. He was the messenger without a message. He was deeply <laughs> grieved. Yep, he began to go out to the tops of mountain crags and in order to kill himself by flinging himself down from them. But every time he reached the summit of a mountain, Gabriel was there and appeared to him and said, you are Allah's prophet. (laughs) Boy, nice job picking prophets there, Allah. Thereupon his anxiety would subside and he would come back to himself. Mudadi Mudadi explains, I was (laughs) walking one day when I saw an angel who used to come to me at the Hira, I was terror-stricken by him. If he was confronted by Gabriel every time he wanted to commit suicide, why did his image terrify him? Why didn't the Spirit impart a message if he met with his messenger on these occasions? 
why are none of these encounters mentioned in the Quran? Obvious answer? They did not occur. So while we're here, let's open our Qurans to the next statement found in the 96th surah. Uh, consider uh, uh, the you are not a madman reference in the 68th surah, and then review the 93rd, 94th, and 73rd surahs, all of which are in contention for the second position amongst Quranic recitals uh, due to... Uh, uh, their inclusion of references to Muhammad's blankies. The most natural contender for the second revelation would be the rest of the 96, wouldn't you think? It's supposed to be a surah. That would be a recital. We'll just go on from verse uh, um, 5, and that would be the next thing that Allah, Gabriel, the Lord said, right? Wrong. Thanks, Lord. Here it is again, uh, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll go on with it. Read in the name of your rabbi who created. He has created man from a blood clot. <laughs> Read at your Lord is most bountiful, who taught by the pen, taught man what he did not know. <laughs> he's teaching by the pen, and he doesn't have a book, and he's speaking to an illiterate dude that's frightened <laughs> out of his mind. Uh, that's, uh, that's some pretty swell teaching there, uh, Allah. You ought to be proud of yourself. Well, the next the next word is nay, which means no, none of this is true. <laughs> Barely. Man is rebellious and inordinate. Well, thinking that you're trying to get him to surrender to you and you're the devil, I can imagine that might be your point of view. Anyway, nay, verily, man is rebellious and inordinate because he sees himself independent and, su and sufficient. Lo, unto your Lord is your return. Have you seen him who forbids and restrains a slave when he prays? Tell me if he is on the guidance or enjoins piety and guarding. Tell me if he denies and turns away. Knows he not? God sees? Nay, if ceases not, we will catch him by the forelock, a lying, sinful forelock. Then let him call out upon his henchmen. We will call the guards of hell. Nay, do not obey him. Fall prostrate and draw nigh. This is, this is such a a mockery of our intelligence. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know how many times I heard when I was doing those 5,000 talk radio interviews that, you know, you can't uh, quote the, uh, the Hadith as if it's scripture. Only the Quran is scripture. Huh, really? Who in the hell is he talking about then? Who has the line forelock? Hmm? Who are the henchmen? What is the problem here if it's the Quran only because you don't got a clue? Now, if you read the Hadith, oh, you know, this dude is Abu Jal. <laughs> he was Muhammad's friend and cousin who rejected him and mocked him. But if you don't have the Hadith, you don't know what that is. And this makes absolutely no sense 
just as the first five verses of this surah make absolutely no sense. So here we find an unexplained jump to an entirely different topic, that of rebuking another man, one who, while unnamed, is assumed to be Abu Jal. This is evidence of nothing more than the ungod of Islam and his non-prophet are intolerant of rivals and are awful communicators. It also affirms my contention that Allah is hell's warden because he is sending the guards of hell. Since the remainder of the 96th surah was not the second revelation, this means that the surah designation was arbitrary and it was not comprised of a single event or even brought together in a chronological or sensible manner or order. Many years passed between the first third and the remainder of this pathetic rant. So now let's turn to the 68th surah, because it might be a contender, since it was named, whoa, Al-Kalam, should it be? Then Allah has redefined moral such that the revised paradigm included pedophilia and rape, terrorism and mass murder, kidnapping and slavery, thievery and lying, ignorance, as well as illiteracy. This is the uh, 68th surah, which uh, is named after the pen, which of course is uh, natural to assume would be the second surah because it was the pen who was teaching man what he did not know. So what did the pen say to all the little blood clots out there? Noon. <laughs> noon, just noon. It's, it's just the letter. Uh, it happens to be the Hebrew uh, nen. It's, it's just the letter. But we're just going to throw the letter out there by the pen <laughs> and, what, and that which they write. Now, they is plural. The so we have a grammatical issue here. But maybe there's backups to the pen, uh, and that is the issue that we're having here. By the pen and that which they write. And cool. way, what is it that they write? Why don't we have what they write? Yeah. If you're taught That's by the pen, where's the damn book? I'm sorry, I can't produce a book. I wonder if Paula's illiterate, too. Sounds like it. Uh, you are not, by the Rob's grace, a possessed madman. Uh. What part of that's not true? Was he not mad or was he not possessed? Not both? And lo, and lo, for you will be an unending reward. Yep, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the first thing I would have thought of uh, when, when you picked a guy to be your messenger and he uh, claims to be demon-possessed and tries to kill himself by committing suicide is to say, yep, you're, you're not possessed, you're not mad, and for you there will be an unending reward. Yes, uh, because it, what fun would it be to have a prophet if you couldn't bribe them? And lo, verily, you are an exalted standard of uh, character and sublime morality. Uh, really? I'm going to tell you, just the facts, this is not my opinion, 
This is not an exaggeration or an interpretation. Mohammed was a pedophile. Mohammed was a rapist. Mohammed was a misogynist. Mohammed was a mass murderer. Mohammed was a sadist. Mohammed was a psychopath. Mohammed was a thief. Mohammed was a liar. Mohammed was a ruthless terrorist. If you think that is sublime morality, then my guess is that you wouldn't know it if you were demon-possessed or not. You will see, and they will see, who is afflicted with madness. So verily, your Lord knows better who have gone astray from his way, and he knows those who are guided on the way, which, by the way, he never articulates. So obey, not the deniers and rejectors. They would have you compromise and relent so that they, O oh, thy, might be pliant, be malleable, and obey, not a contemptible swear or a feeble oathmonger, slanderer, backbiter, defamer, going about with slander and calumnies, hinderer of good, a transgressor, and malcontent. Boy, he is really on a roll. Crude and cruel, greedy and violent, mean, intrusive bastards, because he had wealth and children. When our revelations you recite to him, he says, these are fables of long ago. We will brand him on the nose. What a lovely God. If you're looking for gods, I'd recommend leaving this one on the shelf. Reminds me of that little gremlin. You know, just add water and they go crazy. Yeah, that's, uh, that's all. <laughs> Maybe Chucky would also be a good uh, comparison. The Islamic ungod doesn't just contradict himself. He annuls the testimony of his messenger. Well, Muhammad said, I'm demon-possessed. Allah says, you're not demon-possessed. Who's telling the truth? Voiding his purpose, of course, in the process. How are you going to trust Muhammad if he claims to be demon-possessed and Allah says he's not demon-possessed? Muhammad admitted that this is what happened to him. It was clear that he was so mad that he wanted to kill himself. There are not a long list of people who are sane that commit suicide. Right? Those that try to commit suicide are typically in the not sane category. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, he promised to enrich his profiteer. However... This cannot be the second revelation because Allah is already engaged in the never-ending argument, condemning Muhammad's rivals by calling them afflicted and mad, led astray, disobeying rejectors, deniers. And since neither Allah nor Muhammad has explained the Islamic way or conveyed a message, it would be premature to condemn anyone if you're trying to be moral. But please, what kind of spirit before providing any moral guidance to anyone, spews out this kind of vitriol. Calling humans contemptible swears, feeble oathmongers, slanderers, backbiters, defamers, transgressors, and malcontents, who are crude and cruel, greedy and intrusive bastards, who deserve to be branded, branded on the nose because they have correctly assessed the Quran was comprised of fables. 
from long ago. If this was the second revelation, the world would have been better off without a third. Joke. Since we will chronicle the 74th surah towards the conclusion of uh, this chapter we're sharing with you, let's, let's see if the 73rd is a credible contender for the second of 114 surahs. It's called <laughs> Bundled Up. Okay, that's, that's when we're going to have the byline. Would you buy a burqa from this man? Uh, Bundled Up seems <laughs> sufficiently... Seems sufficiently cowardly and uh, unappealing. Oh, you who who wrapped in garments. They forgot a verb there, but nonetheless. Oh, you who wrapped in garments. Stand all night, but not all night. Half of it, or a little less, or a little more. <laughs> Recite the Quran in a slow style, perhaps rhythmically. Verily, we shall send down to you a weighty word. Verily low, the rising by night is very hard, but most potent and good for governing, and most suitable for the word when the soul is most receptive. Mm-hmm. Verily, there is for you by day a prolonged ordinary occupation. <laughs> okay. The old man, who is bundled up and tucked in his bed with his prayer blanket, is supposed to recite the Quran slowly. Since Muhammad claimed that enwrapped was the second surah, that's what he said. And since the Mm -hmm. initial revelation contained 34 words, only 17 of which were nouns and verbs, with 11 of them repeated, conjoined with 17 conjunctions, articles, prepositions, and pronouns. He would have been reciting, at catch this, the blistering pace of one word every 48 minutes. <laughs> a period of redundancy, because there's a lot of repetition in the first salvo, it would be one word every hour or so. Stimulating, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah. How could a Muslim read this and not think it through? I know under such circumstances, do you suppose that this would be sufficiently mesmerizing to stupefy the masses? Read in the name of <laughs> of your Lord, who created has created man. From a blood clot. Read. <laughs> and your Lord. Most bountiful. Who taught? By the pen. Taught man. What he did not know. Yippee-i-a. Yippee-i-o. I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> now, yeah, strength, uh, lengthen that out to uh, to 12 hours, please. If Islam were not so opposed to music, and if a composer and orchestra could be found along the Lord's slaves, perhaps they could uh, outdo their God and write and perform a soaring classical score to roar each word into relevance. But even then, I don't suppose that senior citizens swaying at a retirement home could move slowly (laughs) enough to properly reflect 
the rhythm and beat. Don't pick on him over. But that is trivial <laughs> compared to the nocturnal devotion, of course. The Quran was revealed in darkness, and night is the best time to ponder its meaning when the soul is most receptive. Well, Satan, of course, is the prince of darkness, darkness, and evil loves the night. So we have stumbled on yet another clue. And speaking of clues, we have uh, another contradiction. In the Hadith, Muhammad was a recluse, hiding in caves and sleeping during the day. He was the furthest thing from a businessman. So who is lying about his occupation during the day? Muhammad or Allah? 73008 from your favorite Quran. But keep in remembrance the name of your Lord and devote yourself to him in complete devotion. How can one remember the name of a Lord whose name has not yet been named? Hmm, Muslims don't know that because they read the Quran as if it, you know, a hurricane hit it and a tornado spewed it into various pieces and they just flip it together wherever they found it. And so they start with a, uh, a surah that was revealed 12 years or more into the process. And it's the time that Muhammad's already left Petra in shame and is now uh, playing Messiah in Yathrib. Uh, and that's when Allah's name is first mentioned prior to then. The, uh, the God of the Quran is just a nameless Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not even sure he's a Lord. He's a rabbi. That's how it's written in the text. Yes. Quran 73009, Lord of the East and the West. La ilaha illa hua. There is no God but he. So take him alone for disposer of affairs. Quran 10, 73, 10. And bear patiently what they say and avoid them with a becoming avoidance, keeping away from them. Well, the Lord of the East, Babylon, of course, is Satan. That is where Yashiyah, Isaiah, said he would emerge. There is no other devil but he, the ultimate disposer of affairs. And, of course, following his advice would make Muhammad the only messenger who was told to avoid his audience. Clever. A hadith says, Now Muhammad did not want his secret to be divulged before he applied himself to the publication of his message. How could he publish that which was not written? (laughs) Nonetheless, he needed time to create enough of these rhyming surahs to make his claim seem believable. Uh, Then he would take it to the publisher, I suspect. Except there were not at that place in time. Leave, leave me alone to deal with the rejectors and the possessors of ease, comfort, and plenty. Give them a respite for but a while. Verily, we have heavy fetters with us to bind them and a roaring furnace to burn them and food that choke them, sticking in the throat along with a painful torment. If this isn't the devil, then uh, I don't recommend ever uh, meeting Satan. Well, we haven't been formally introduced, Muhammad's spirits does seem all too familiar. The Lord of rejection and oppression who chokes the life out of men. 
and who will endure an anguishing punishment is indeed Satan, the adversary. But make, make no mistake, this Lord is mean-spirited and he is sadistic. He is telling everybody in Muhammad's company, other than Muhammad himself, leave me alone to deal with the rejectors. I have fetters for them. I have a roaring furnace to burn them. I have food that chokes them and will stick in the throat. And that theme just isn't said here. It's said everywhere. Second only to the never-ending argument, it's the second most prevalent theme within the Quran. My God, but in your God. That the wannabe God of the Quran is the Lord of punishment. And he's not saying you're going to go to the Islamic hell and be punished. He's the punisher. He wants to be left alone with them so he can personally punish them. Which means that Allah is spending all of his time in hell. And that Allah himself is sadistic. Demonic. A torturer. That's not my word. These are his words. They're directly out of the Quran. Before we press on, I'd like to bring your attention to the fact that nothing moral or beneficial has been revealed thus far. and will never be. The Quran is but a paragraph long, and its nonprofit has been told to avoid discussing it. This means that Muhammad is being rejected, not his message. Further, the punishment awaiting the possessors of ease and plenty tells us that the wannabe prophet is tormented by his relative poverty at this time. Covetous of what belongs to other, his inward anguish turns sadistic. The heavy fetters, the roaring furnace, the choking torments are a way of lashing out at those he envies. At this early juncture, there is no other plausible explanation for this kind of tongue lashing. Either Muhammad was deeply disturbed and wanted to torture men without justification, or his deity was this unjust and perverted. As such, the enwrapped surah unveils Islam's lack of moral authority. Ishak, the revelation stopped for some time so that the apostle was distressed and grieved. Then Gabriel brought him the morning in which he swore that he had not forsaken him and did not hate him. The following insight is from Al-Madudi's Quran commentary. It reads, the, the surah theme is to console the prophet and remove his anxiety which had been caused by the suspicion, the suspension of revelation. By swearing an oath by the morning and the night, he was reassured. And then he was given the good news that the hardships he was experiencing in the initial stage of his mission would not last long. Soon Allah would bless him so abundantly that he would be pleased. Yeah, he'd become a terrorist and he would wallow in plunder 
including little slave girls. It seemed to please him. Well, this is nonsense. It is important that we understand the Muslim perspective. However, Muhammad hadn't suffered any uh, hardships on account of his mission thus far because there had been no mission. All that had happened was about in a cave with an angry spirit and a nonsensical revelation, some panic. Khadija's scheme, a blind man's bluffing, and a little boasting around town. But Muslims needing an excuse for their wannabe prophets' morose and suicidal behavior were willing to contradict Allah's revelation to give their hero an alibi. So let's dive into the surah, uh, and you'll see what I've been sharing. Mm -hmm. This is from the 93rd surah, beginning on verse 1. I swear by the early hours of the day and by the night when dark and still, your Lord hath not forsaken thee, nor doth he despise this. Why the King James 17th century Elizabethan English? Well, do you suppose that thy hath forsaken thee and doth, and doth despise this? are not used in these translations to make the Quran seem, well, biblical? Uh, just speculation, of course, on my part, but for readability's sake, I'll endeavor from now on to make the Lord's words more intelligible. So let's move on now uh, that we doth verily know that the Lord doth sweareth, but hath not forsaken. Uh, although be it a mystery, why he doth despiseth thee not, and why he uh, loveth the darkness. Okay, you caught me. Uh, 93.4. Surely what comes after is better for you than the present. Okay. For your Lord gave you, so shall be well pleased. Did he not find you an orphan and give you a refuge? and find you lost and perplexed, unaware, and show you the way? Did he not find you poor and make you rich? Oh my, if I could only get these words cemented in every Muslim's mind, what a difference it would make. Because the Quran will go on to talk about frying people alive, torturing them, because they did not properly, because they didn't enrich the orphan. Because there was somebody in need and they didn't give them their money. Well, who do you think that orphan might be? Didn't Allah just say, yeah, you're the orphan. I found you poor. I made you rich. People didn't do it. So we're going to toast them. Well, there's nothing virtuous in the Quran about the treatment of orphans and the poor, because the impoverished individual that was this tragic orphan was none other than Muhammad himself. Well, times can't be that torturous, that uh, lords are reduced to bribing their prophets, but perhaps. And it's that uh, old age ploy of, uh, of religion 
Sure, your life is miserable now. We all know it. But if you play along and don't rebel, I promise it will be better in the hereafter. Of course, that time it will be too uh, late to hold the line lords accountable, but such is the nature of religion. Mm. Obviously, Muhammad's childhood was miserable, so Allah is mistaken about the refuge. And he uh, remains as lost and as unaware as any man who ever tried to speak for a god. So there has been no enlightenment. And surely, Hell's Warden doesn't actually think that the blood clot revelation was direction. Muhammad could barely find his way home. And if yeah. the Lord hadn't already had already enriched Muhammad, why was his presence so bleak? Or better question, since Muhammad had the childhood from hell, how was he protected? Is his God's memory failing? Or is Muhammad's spirit endorsing what we had determined was Khadija's profitable profit plan? PPP. He found you poor and made you rich. This is a good place to give you my interpretation of the gospel, according to Khadija, uh, who was uh, Muhammad's uh, elderly wife and employer. Um, they were also uh, Ken, uh, directly related. Um, Muhammad was her cousin. Uh, stick with me, kid, and I'll make this profit gig profitable. Now, I can't prove this to you, but it makes more sense than any of this actually coming from a god. Having married money twice and climbed the social ladder of, uh, of Petra, uh, Kajita was in trouble. Her fortunes were dwindling while her absentee husband slash employee uh, hung out in caves. And having made a, uh, a fortune, selling trinkets to the Hajj pilgrims at the pagan fairs around the Kaaba, uh, she knew all about religious scams. So she had motive, she had means, she had opportunity. What's more, her behavior was consistent with my theory. According to Aisha's testimony in the Hadith and Ishaq's in the Sira, Khadija was the real founder of Islam. Muhammad mm -hmm. believed that he had been possessed by a demon. He was scared to death. She converted him to Islam, usurping her nearly dead cousin's credibility to do so. Remember what she said? No, never. It can't be. Be happy, I swear by Allah, that he will never humiliate you. Truly, I hope that you will be the prophet of this people. Allah will not bring you shame. Mm -hmm. Let's review the facts. The caravan business Kajita owned uh, and its prosperity to uh, Allah's recently restored uh, pagan rock shrine uh, stood not more than 100 meters from where this conversation took place. Petra provided one of the few watering holes for caravans, moving goods from the ports of the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. While that was good, no one becomes rich caring for folks passing through town. 
So the Kaaba became Petra's meal ticket, along with the crumbling relics of a time long past. Muhammad's great-great-grandfather, Kusay, had gained control of the idol temple and organized an annual pilgrimage to the shrine. He collected a tax from every Arab attendee. While the religious tax was a profitable idea and one that's made its way into Islam, the series of economic fairs that Kusay arranged surrounding the Hajj proved to be his most capitalistic venture. Papa Mutalib, Muhammad's grandfather, the one who sacrificed camels to the Kaaba's idols at a sorcerer's urging, ultimately gained control over the concession to feed and water the pilgrims. He became the recipient of the religious tax, something that made him even richer by comparison to the poverty in Petra at the time. And as the Kaaba's custodian, he pocketed coin charging Arab chiefs for rent uh, to house their sacred stones. He charged them more for visitation rights and even more for their God's care, feeding, watering, and dusting services, of course. The combination served to make the merchants of Petra rich by Bedouin standards anyway. Khadija was a beneficiary. So she told Mohammed, Better than being the Kaaba's custodian, you are Allah's prophet. And what's more prestigious and profitable than being a recluse, my dear? I had Ethan title Kajita, the first to believe. Says it all. And it contained these incriminating lines. Muhammad was to tell them of his Lord's bounty to himself. Of the bounty of your Lord, let your discourse be. It was followed by, thereupon the messenger began to proclaim Allah's bounty to himself. Mm. Ishak Surah reports, Khadija was the first to believe in Allah and his apostle. By her, Allah enlightened and lightened the burden of his prophet. He never met with contradiction and charges of falsehood, but he was comforted by her when he went home. She strengthened him, and she belittled the opposition. She was the founder of Islam, the one who conceived the profitable prophet plan. Khadija believed in Allah before Muhammad did because Allah was her meal ticket. And while she conceived the profitable prophet idea, she had to endure a great deal just to keep God's messenger going. His contradictions prompted charges of falsehood, we are told. Mm -hmm. We've already discovered these echoing thoughts throughout the Hadith, so Kajita belittled the opposition. This made her the inspiration for the Quran's overwhelming propensity to condemn Muhammad's opponents, treating and threatening them with doom. Kajita, the most liberated woman of her day, doomed women to losing all freedoms. 
Testimony in support of what I'm calling the profitable profit plan can be found throughout Tabati's history. This is Tabati volume 6, page 82. During the period of, of ignorance, I came to Mecca and I stayed with the boss, Ben Mutaly. The sun rose while I was looking at the Kaaba. A young man, supposed to be Muhammad, came up and gazed at the sky. He turned to face the Kaaba soon after a woman, which would be Kajita, uh, and a youth, be Ali, came and stood behind him. The young man bowed, and the woman and the youth bowed, and then the man stood erect, following, followed by the woman and youth. The young man prostrated himself, and they did the same. Abbas asked, Do you know what this is? No, I answered. This is Khadija, my nephew's wife. He has told me that his Lord has commanded them to do what you see they're doing. Allah's oath, I do not know anyone on the face of the earth but these three who follow this religion. I asked Abbas, what is this religion? He answered, this is Muhammad bin Abdullah who claims that Allah has sent him as his messenger with this religion and that the treasures of Crusoe's and Caesar will be given to him by conquest. Now, of course, we've, uh, we've listened to everything that could be considered an early Quran recital. There is no reference to the Kaaba. There's no reference to bowing. If bowing before a rock pile is the essence of your religion, then you have a serious problem. But the previous chapter of Goddamn Religion was, can you who say scam? That the hadith itself verify that everything Muhammad was doing had been done by his forefathers. Yeah. And that every ritual within Islam, including the prostration prayer, including the Kaaba, circumambulation, the Hajj, all of it oh, was conceived well before Muhammad was even born. So how could this be something that no one else had done before when we've just read a hundred hadith that said exactly the opposite? Were these Muslims lying then, or are they lying now? And can you imagine that there is a religion that the, uh, the alleged God says that his messenger is going to be rewarded with the treasures of Bruce Rose and Caesar? It's incriminating. It's an admission of guilt, proof that Islam was created by a wannabe profiteer. Yeah. So we should linger on this hadith a moment because I'm surprised the Islamic scriptures would confess to the profitable profit plan so openly. This is the first explanation of the motivation behind Muhammad's religion. And in it, we're told that it was conceived to steal treasure by way of conquest. While this is confirmed countless times in Yathrib, we're still in Petra. Three partial surahs into the Quran. And Tabati's hadith does not stand alone. Ishak reveals a similar tradition, only his is even more direct. 
Ishak 113, the Sira, the biography of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. When I was a merchant, I came to Mecca. They all say Mecca because they were written two to three hundred years after the fact. It, Mecca didn't even exist at the time. It was Petra. But they, uh, they say what they say. I'm going to read what they say. When I was a merchant, I came to Mecca during the Hajj pilgrimage. Well, there was a young man out to pray, and he stood facing the Kaaba. Then a woman and a boy came out and stood praying with him. I asked, what is their religion? It is something new to me, Abbas said. This is Muhammad who alleges that Allah has sent him with it so that the treasures of Khusros and Caesar will be open to him. The woman is his wife, Khadija, who believes in him. The original motivation for Islam was greed. The profitable prophet plan has been confirmed by the Hadith, the Sirah, and the Quran. The false prophet composed situational scriptures to enrich himself. Moreover, the Khan got off to a rocky start. Muhammad impugned his credibility. Rome had long since been plundered. This is the 7th century. Rome's gone. So the last Caesar had been sandals up for centuries. And you may be wondering why Mohammed would covet Cruz Rose treasure. Well, I did a little digging and found out that he was Crusu, or Cruz Rue, I should say, Cruz Rue, uh, Parvez, K-H-O-S-R-U-P-A-R-V-E-Z. Probably haven't heard of him. I hadn't heard of him previously. He's a Persian no, king. He was a contemporary of Muhammad. Uh, and in 626 CE, adjusted for today's dollars, he had stashed away over $2 billion in silver and gold. His annual income exceeded $700 million. Relative to others of his day, he was the richest man alive. Mm. Read. In Bukhari, we find another confession of guilt. The prophet said, Khrushchev was will be ruined, and there will be no Khrushchev after him, and Caesar will surely be ruined, and there will be no Caesar after him, and you will spend their treasures in Allah's cause. And Bukhari 793, volume 4, book 56. The prophet said, if you live long enough, the treasures of Grosau will be opened and taken as spoils, and you will carry out handfuls of gold and silver. Another Bukhari had it. I have been given the keys of the treasures of the world by Allah. Money. Wow. was the motivation behind Islam. It wasn't monotheism. Mm -hmm. It was loot. In this light, let's examine the remainder of the second revelation of the profitable prophet plan, cognizant that Muhammad was the orphan who was being harassed. 93.9 Therefore, treat not the orphan with harshness, or oppress him, nor repulse the beggar, or chide the petitioner. But as for the favor of your Lord, 
rehearse, and then announce. This also sounds suspicious. Islam's first two religious covenants are specific to Muhammad. He was an orphan treated with harshness. He was oppressed, probably molested, as we will learn later, and had to beg. He was chided as a child and as a man. These things haunted him. It is why he had his God tell those who treated him poorly that it wasn't very nice of them to do so. And he would get even because his dark spirit was going to make him rich and them poor. And in less than a godly blunder, Muhammad's Lord tells his prophet to rehearse the favor that he was supposed to announce. He even contradicted himself. The third, 73rd surah told Muhammad to avoid announcements. Now, you think I'm being a little too cynical here. Just wait. Each of the next 20 surahs served to condemn, or excuse me, served to condemn, yeah, Muhammad and confirm my theory. One already rife with copious confessions. Thus far, this has all been for the benefit of Muhammad and punishment and rebuke of all others. He isn't the last messenger to mankind, but instead the greatest con among men. Before we go on, the Lord's fourth Quranic gift to Muhammad and consider it, let's uh, look how the prophet said these insights came to him. Once again, the 50 to 68-year-old prophet is either 50 at the time if he was born in 70 CE, but since it's likely that he was born in 552, the year of the elephant, when it's attributed to him, then he would have been 68 years old when he jumped in the sack with a six-year-old girl. She is the source of, uh, of this hadith, she said. Allah's messenger, how is the divine's inspiration revealed to you? He replied, sometimes it's like the ringing of a bell. This form of inspiration is the hardest of all, and then this state passes after I have grasped what is inspired. Sometimes the angel comes to me in the form of a man and talks to me, and I grasp whatever he says. Asia added, I saw the prophet being inspired and noticed the sweat dropping from his forehead on a very cold day as the inspiration was over. Since the Hadith claims Muhammad only saw Gabriel on two occasions, then how did he come upon the remaining 112 surahs? Bukhari reports, whoever tells you that Muhammad saw his Lord is a liar. The prophet only saw Gabriel twice. In Islam's creation account, we're told that Allah had given up on oral communication and he wanted everything in writing with uh, angelic witnesses. I don't know if I've shared that on this show, but it's certainly in uh, volume one of uh, this book and you're, uh, you'll find it if you read along uh, with us. So now he turns to an illiterate man and communicates by uh, means of a gong. The God of two billion people 
ought to be more capable than clanging bells, blood clots, and having to bribe a despondent messenger. That's all we've got thus far. Perhaps things will turn around with the next series of revelations, or perhaps not. (laughs) Unfortunately, no one seems to know what came next. Muslims don't even know how the surahs were pieced together. Early and late revelations are jumbled haphazardly. So the best we can do is to attribute a collection of surahs to the formative period. The 96 surah is an example, as we have witnessed. The first third represents the first verses revealed. The remainder was received years later when the prophet began to prostrate himself at the Kaaba. We're told that Abu Jal, Muhammad's arch-rival and nemesis, taunted him. Abu Allah al-Madudi reports, After his appointment to prophethood and before he started preaching Islam, Muhammad began performing the prostration prayer facing Allah's house and the way, doing so the way Allah had taught him. Surprisingly, this performance was never described in the Quran. So how did Allah teach him? Its absence, of course, is perplexing. Allah took the time to give Muhammad permission to take part in pedophilia, to be a rapist. He approved him being a thief. He devoted a whole surah to womanizing, the slave trade, to mass murder, but never bothered to explain the nature of the religious performance known as the prostration prayer. The Islamic ideologue Sayyid Abdul Allah Modudi wrote the following in his Quran commentary. Watching the technique, the Quraysh assumed that he had adopted a new religion. The other people were watching it with curiosity, but Abu Jal and his arrogance and pride threatened the Prophet and forbade him to worship in that way in the Kaaba. Of course, this is a direct contradiction of all of the other <coughs> hadith that say that all of this was practiced long before Muhammad was born. But if you don't like contradictions, you're not going to like the Quran very much. Endeavoring to explain the 96th surah brings us to this tradition recorded by al-Madudi and other and very popular among Muslims. Does Muhammad set his face on the ground before you? When they replied in the affirmative, he said, By Lat and Uza, if I ever catch him in the act, I will set my foot on his neck and I will rub his face in the dust. Since the Kaaba was called a mosque or a place of prostration in Arabic, Way back in Kusay's day, Muhammad didn't invent the face-to-the-ground bowing technique. This hadith continues. When he saw the messenger in the prostration posture, he tried to set foot on his neck, but suddenly he turned back as if in a fright, asked what was the matter. He said, there was a ditch, a fire, and a terrible apparition between me and Muhammad. On hearing this, the prophet said, had he come near me, the angels would have smitten him and torn him to pieces. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Uh, sure. This, this is intended to be another <laughs> proof of Muhammad's calling. The notion that Muhammad's most annoying rival, after publicly threatening the non-prophet, would admit to seeing a divine sign protecting him, of course, is ludicrous. 
If it occurred, he might run, he might apologize, he might become a Muslim, but Jal would never confess to being foiled by the prophet's deity and then remain an adversary. Unless, of course, he saw the fire as a symbol of the devil's influence in the prophet's proclamation. Testifying further, we read, According to Ibn Abbas, Abu Jal said, If I caught Muhammad performing his prayer by the Kaaba, I would trample down his neck. When the Holy Prophet heard it, he said, If he acted so, the angels would seize him, and there and then would be that. According to another tradition from Ibn Abbas, the Holy Prophet was performing his prayer at the Makam Ibrahim, Abdu'l-Jal passed that way and said, Oh, Muhammad, did I not forbid you to do this? And then he started to threaten him. In reply, the holy prophet rebuked him severely. Thereupon he said, Oh, Muhammad, on what strength do you rebuke me? By God, my followers in this valley far exceed yours in numbers. This time the scene was recast, but without the embarrassing reference to the pit of flames. But that hardly gets the revisionists out of the fire. It would be some time before Muhammad would reveal his God's name. And by their own admission, there were only three Muslims in the town of several thousand. But it got a bit gross from there. This is a continuation of the same theme. It's narrated by Abdullah, which means slave to Allah. While the prophet was in a state of prostration, surrounded by a group of the Karish pagans, uh, Uqa bin Abi Mu'it came and brought the intestines of a camel and threw them on the back of the prophet. So where were the angels that were going to tear people to pieces if they touched him? Hmm? Yeah. The prophet did not raise his head from prostration until Fatima, which is his daughter, came and removed those intestines, not the angels, of course, from his back and invoked evil on whoever had done this terrible deed. The prophet said, O oh, Allah, destroy the chiefs of the Quraysh. O oh, Allah, destroy Abu Jal ben Hisham, Utbah ben Rabia. It goes on and on and on. Later on, I saw all of them killed during the Battle of Badar, and their bodies were thrown into a well except the body of Ubai because he was a fat person. <laughs> he was pulled, the parts of his body got separated before he was thrown into the well. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, yeah. What happened in the Battle of Badar is Muhammad. uh, uh, That was his first uh, terrorist raid. He coveted the uh, money of his uh, of his kin, and uh, and so he didn't go after that for any purpose other than. And that Quran's very clear about this. He wanted the money. He wanted to steal it from them, and in so doing, he killed a number of his kin, his neighbors. And when he killed them, he was just like the uh, the Muslims of ten seven. He gloated over them. He dismembered them, and he was sadistic. Now, there's also an interesting thing here. It mentioned the Hashem tribe. You've, you've heard that, that name before, Hashem? Yeah. Hashem means the name. It is the, yeah. uh, the term that, uh, that rabbis 
used to replace Allah's name. They called him the name as opposed to Yahweh. I just didn't mean to say Allah's name, but Yahweh's no, name. Yahweh's name is replaced uh, in all the uh, rabbinical writings by Hashem, the name. Uh, Hashem is a Hebrew term. It means that the tribe was likely uh, Hebrew. Um, mm-hmm. That means that Muhammad was likely Jewish. Uh, the the Koresh is is not a a tribal designation. Uh, it is from the Hebrew word. Uh, to call out, to welcome, to greet, uh, to read, to recite. It means they would have been the, the, the people of the Quran, of the Kara, uh, Quran, is who the Karish would have been. Um, they are uh, um, a group of, of Hashem tribesmen, but not an independent tribe. Uh, and all of this smacks of Hebrew which means they were either monotheistic Arab converts to Judaism or they were ethnic Jews practicing Mm -hmm. Judaism for them to have these kind of names, which would have made a lot of sense uh, for uh, Petra at the time. Because Petra, after the 4th century earthquake, was abandoned by both the Nabataeans, whose capital it had been, uh, and by the Romans, who had conquered them. And so it became a, a place for for those who were disenfranchised because, well, there were you know, um, in this valley, you know, you could restack some of the rocks and and have a uh, a home of sorts. And so it went from twenty or thirty thousand inhabitants down to probably two or three thousand inhabitants. Um, and there was no prosperity in the town, but but that's uh, uh, nonetheless where they were. So with the Hadith providing the necessary context, and at this point, we are still recording, even though we're no longer broadcasting, but most of uh, our show's listeners call in, and they're still listening to us. And again, about 99% of the show's audience is in the podcast or archives, and all of this is recording for their benefit. So we'll uh, continue, because exposing and condemning Islam is essential to the survival of Israel, uh, and it needs to be done. So Quran 96, uh, uh, 6 reads, uh, Nay, verily, man is rebellious and inordinate because he seems himself as independent and sufficient. Lo, unto your Lord you will return. I don't recall ever seeing this dude in the first place, so I don't know how we're supposed to return to him, but nonetheless, that's what he claims. <laughs> Have you seen him who forbids and restrains a slave when he prays? Tell me, if he is on the guidance or enjoying piety and guarding. Tell me if he denies and turns away. Knows he not that God sees? Nay, if Abu Jal ceases not, we will catch him by the lying forelock. A lying sinful forelock, then let him come out to his henchmen, and we will call the guards of hell. No, nay, do not obey him, fall prostrate and draw nigh. So the reason we went over this again, now that you've heard the Hadith explain the nature of the argument, uh, mm-hmm. the Quran's addictive, uh, it's myopic, but it makes some sense. That's why it has to be put in the context of Muhammad's life. But then when you see it in the context of Muhammad's life, what is the possibility that the creator God of the universe before the universe was even created, 14 billion years ago, had the pen write this trivial nonsense 
about one man's <laughs> intestine fight with another and, uh, and, and make it part of the first sura that was handed down. I mean, no big picture, no covenant, no liberation from, uh, from Egypt, nothing that you could say. This is a sweeping panorama of, of human purpose and of God's nature. No, it's a shit show. Literally. Yeah. I mean, there is no way in hell that the creator God of the universe created this revelation before the earth was created, much less created it to deal with this mud fight between two spoiled brats and Petra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This serves as an irrefutable example of a conclusion that I've been reinforcing from the beginning. One even the Quranic scholar Sayyid Abdul Allah Madudi, the Quran cannot be understood without the benefit of the Hadith. Although I would go so far as to say that both the opening and concluding segments of the first surah revealed are senseless without the Sunnah explanations. And with the Hadith, they're repulsive. Right. Of the four or five candidates for the second revelation, the 74th, is similar to the last two pronouncements. So well, let's go ahead and review it while we have some time left in our program. 74, verse 1. O oh, you enveloped and covering up, arise and warn, and your Lord magnify, and your garments free from stain, and banish trepidation and al roots whatever that means, and give not a thing in order to have more, and for the sake of your Lord, be patient. There it is. Okay. So once again, the non-prophet of the Quran, the Lord's messenger, the terror of Yathrib, is hiding under covers. Yet this seizing, smiting, and dragging Lord wants him to deliver a warning. That's quite a picture. And while they are at odds, now frightful and frightened, terrorist and terrorized, this will change like Lord-like messenger. Soon enough, they will be inseparable and indistinguishable. But so as to pretty it up for the moment, the Lord, ever fascinated with meaningless details, tells Muhammad to dress for success, to keep his clothes clean. And he listened, at least according to Will Durant in his story of civilization. He says the Muhammad was vain. He gave considerable time to his personal appearance, perfumed his body, painted his eyes, dried his, dyed his hair, and wore a ring inscribed, Muhammad, Messenger of Allah. Later, hadiths confirm each of Durant's charges. Up to a point. I have been remiss in divulging something exceedingly embarrassing, indeed indicting. The Arabic word for Lord, as I've shared with you uh, verbally here in this part of this program, is the same word that the rabbis chose to exalt. The Quran's opening statement was conveyed in Hebrew. It reads, Aikara bi shemi rabika. The Hebrew basis is kara bashem rab. 
Kara means to invite and to summon, to meet and to welcome, to call out and to greet, to read and recite. This exceedingly important verb is used throughout the Torah to invite us to meet with Yahweh during the Mikre, which comprise the means to eternal life, to perfection, adoption, enrichment and empowerment, enlightenment and reconciliation, leading to camping out with God. Kara was then misappropriated by Allah as the name for his abysmal Quran. It's a Hebrew word. In the Quran's opening statement, Kara means read, Bah means in, Shem means name, and Rab is an exalted Lord and great master in the sense of rabbi. Ka after it would mean rabbi-like. However, since Arabic is a derivative of Hebrew, using the same alphabet, Lord should have been written Adon or Baal. And that this is an indication, I think, that the rabbis in Petra and Yathrib, who provided Muhammad with Talmud recitals to make his Quran seem religious, mm-hmm. pulled a fast one on him. And they mm-hmm. inserted their title for the initial name of his god, Rabbi. In this case, Rab and Rabbi are to be magnified and exalted. I'm sure they got a chuckle out of that one, but I don't think they're laughing now. As you heard, I made no attempt to translate our roots, R-U-J-Z. Some linguists suggest that it means pollution. Others claim idols. I have found references to deeds deserving punishment, which which many render as sin. Confusion and variety aside, I found the edict to give not a thing in order to have more notion, a hilarious uh, bit of hilarity anyway, considering that it followed Allah's promise to make Muhammad rich, which he did exclusively through stealing. Furthermore, Allah has offered Muslims nothing for their lives, and they are his slaves. Quran uh, 74, 7 reads, And for the sake of your Lord, be patient. That's an exceedingly odd thing to say. The inference is that the Lord was new at this revelation stuff, and that it would take him a while to get in the groove. So be patient with him as he stumbles his way through these initial Quran recitals. Why would you be patient if the book had been written 14 billion years ago? And the results. Who will live? Who will die? The next verse continues a trend that may be the most demented ever conceived in the religious genre. Paraphrased, God hates us and can't wait to introduce us to a hell he has made for our hospitality. While heaven and hell are concepts borrowed from many others, Muhammad takes them well beyond Dante's Inferno. Quran mm-hmm. seventy four oh eight reads, Then when the trumpet is sounded, surely that day will be of anguish, not at ease for the disbelievers. Leave me alone to deal with the creature whom I created naked and alone. 
As a result of our previous investigations of the Quran, we are familiar with the notion of the trumpet announcing the day of doom, on which, according to Allah, the bodies of all unbelievers, some 100 billion infidels, which would be the total number, are to be uh, resurrected. They'll be reconstituted so that Allah can torture them forevermore. By alluding to it here, in what is among the first handful of revelations, without even the pretense of how it can be avoided, suggests that Allah's prime objective is to torture people mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. them having any way to avoid the process. The snake in the garden who slithered out into the desert and envenomated this suicidal quivering excuse for a man is reprising the ploy he used with Chawa. I suppose because the serpent sees a lot of her in him. Mm. And in that it worked 4,600 years prior, Satan is using misappropriate and misconstrue Yahweh's instructions. And that's what's happening here, beside the terrified would-be troubadour. Islam's Lord is aware that Yahweh defines our current mission, which is to prepare Yisrael for his return on Yom Kippurim, the day of reconciliations in the year 6,000 Yats, a Sunday at sunset in Jerusalem, October 2nd, 2033. And He does so using the symbolism of a shofar trumpet. On Teruah, which is the day this mission was commenced in 2001, days after the Islamic suicide bombings of 9-11-01, we began by exposing and condemning Muhammad and Allah, their Quran and Hadith, to warn the world about the toxicity of this destructive and deadly plague. Then this led to Yada Yahweh, where we have collaborated to awaken Yisrael and Yahuda Jews, Israelites, to the truth about Yahweh, so that God's people are prepared for the upcoming family reunion. Now this is what Hasatan, the adversary, is attempting to foil with his day of doom. If he can't cower and kill all Jews to the extent that they forgo this opportunity, there would be no reason for Yahweh to return, leaving a decimated planet for Satan to lord over. That's the objective. That's the objective we learned when we covered the book Mm -hmm. of Ezekiel. Yeah, Satan is committed to killing every Jew and those he cannot kill to get them to cower, because if no one shows up for the day of reconciliation, then it can't be fulfilled. There's no one for Yahweh to return to, and if it doesn't occur, there's no reason for him to come back to earth, and Satan is free to rule over a decimated planet. That's Satan's idea of winning. It is the basis of Islam, the basis of the Day of Doom. It's the basis of the book of Ezekiel. Now I came to this conclusion because this yeah. was this was uh, my not my first and not my only battle with the devil. Some 15 years ago, I wrote the first 
slender edition of Questioning Paul, which has subsequently grown to four volumes, not unlike updating Prophet of Doom following October 7th, 23, leading now to the more expansive four volumes of Goddamn Religion. While Paul was similarly demon-possessed and sinister, he was a literate and clever rabbi. And as such, the Christian New Testament is a vastly more sophisticated adaptation of the snake's ploy in the garden. My next bout with the Lord came about unexpectedly several years ago. I thought to conclude my review of the book Scribed in Babel, uh, the confounding commingling in Babylon, by assessing the book of Ezekiel, which proved to be Satan's autobiography and playbook. It was there that I witnessed this snake's fixation on annihilating Jews. And his story is 25 ways to kill a Jew. He would even rape them, despoiling their wombs of Jewish women so that he could breed them out of existence. He would resurrect an army composed of dry bones to do his bidding, which was to rise above Yahweh while placing his gaudy trophy atop Moriah. That revisionist temple would cover the entire land of Judea. In that account, the cannibalistic feast of the beast where God's son Dode, David, is on the menu, along with his herald, yours truly, is similarly uh, slated to replace this Yahweh's day of reconciliations with Satan's day of doom. So you see, I've read the Snake's Playbook, and I recognize the acts and the actors. Moreover, I'm just a mortal against an immortal beast. Yet I have been equipped with the seven spirits of Yahweh such that we will prevail. The family reunion will be attended. Yahweh will return with doubt. And Satan will not just lose. Allah will be dispatched to Sheol where he will exist as a prisoner forever. Yay. Now, Satan, ever desirous of controlling everything, credits, uh, claims credit for human ingenuity and success. This is odd since he is unable to replicate any of it through his Muslim slaves. And then he granted wealth and vast riches and sons to be by his side, and he made things smooth and comfortable for them. Now, this snake cannot endure the thought that men and women have value and that they can be productive. In the serpent's view, the creation of mankind was a colossal mistake, one he seeks to rectify by enslaving and, con- and killing everyone. Then he intends to torture those who didn't capitulate showing them who's Lord and who's not. All Allah has afforded his slaves has been to provide them with a reason to die, killing disbelievers. Islam is a death cult. And as a result, it continues to terrorize everyone. Ultimately, Allah is ticked off 
an angry and frustrated snake. After contributing to Judaism, Christianity, Islam, progressive socialist humanism, and ensnarling 90% of the planet and his coils, envenomating them, it just isn't enough. Israel still exists, and Jews remain. And therefore, he's out of options. There is no venom left in his fangs. He has read Yahweh's script, and he knows that he's going to lose. Particularly embarrassing for the once brilliant Karub of the Gan Eden, as he is being foiled by an old man, a goy no less, who dared rebuke him, <laughs> even expose and condemn the snake in the desert and his satanic delusions of grandeur. I uh, wrote in a uh, recent chapter uh, to a Muslim and said, you want to prove your religion? Have your God come after me. He evidently knows all. He sees all. He has all power. Sick him on me. Mm-hmm. Obviously knows where I am. Let's go. Mono Lordo. <laughs> but don't capitulate and say, no, no, no. Allah has to have his little killer, so I'm going to let him indoctrinate me to do his bidding. No, don't, don't do that. Don't prove that I'm right and that the Quran inspires men to be murderers. That doesn't gain you anything. Sick Allah on me. I'm right here. The realization is Allah can't so much as write a book. He can't do squat. Nope. So I'll be here next week <laughs> to bring in you this show. Okay. <laughs> and, and we will continue to mock the snake in the desert. And we do so with purpose. And that is not to free Muslims for Islam because I really don't care anymore. The things that you've done, the things that you've said you don't deserve. A uh, another chance. I don't do this to save America or uh, or Europe or the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, doomed. Right. I do this for a single yeah. reason. I love Yahweh. I work for Him. He wants a family reunion with His people on Yom Kippurim, and for that to occur, a reasonable number of a remnant of Yisrael and Yahuda needs to be awakened come to know Yahweh's name, to have an appreciation of who he is, what he's offering, and expects in return, so that they are there with welcoming arms, excited to see the return of their God. May Yahweh bless. We look forward to being with you this uh, this time next week. Happy Shabbat, one mm-hmm. and all. Shabbat shalom, y'all. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night.